whatever technology we were in love with three years ago probably isn't that great anymore. You know, maybe it is, but we're sort of used to the idea of having to kill your darlings and take those out of the mix and replace it with something else, that, that constant creative destruction of your own tech stack. Hello and a very warm welcome to this, our second series of transformation stories from the award-winning Veltec Cafe. Last year, we spoke to more than 25 global brands and industry experts about their experiences of digital transformation. And this series is no different. From airlines to retailers, manufacturers to healthcare companies, this is a podcast series that strips away the digital buzzwords and challenges what we all thought we knew about our industry. Covering topics from the circular economy to customer experience, emerging tech to composable architectures, we're removing the filters and getting to the bottom of what's really going on in digital today. I'm Tizzy Philp, and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host for today, PJ Stephen. Along with Tizzy Philp, I'm co-hosting the second series of our transformational podcast, bringing you a North American perspective. Today, you'll hear about bravery in the face of uncertainty an embracing of inevitable change and the case for storytelling as a powerful mechanism for innovation. In today's conversation, I learn about how a hybrid skill set makes for a unique bilingual advantage in digital transformation in multiple Canadian markets. In the case of Dan Dickinson, currently EVP of Technology and Digital at one of Canada's largest wine producers, Artera Wines Canada, those two languages are business and technology both passed through a lens of digital first customer centricity. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So first of all, Dan, appreciate you joining us today. I'd love to get a little bit of context and background about yourself. And importantly, how you came to be energized by this opportunity that's presented itself at Artera. Yeah, thanks. It's, it's a bit of an unusual journey, I think, after uh, spending, as I did, about 20 odd years in the banking industry wasn't, you know, not a normal path, I think, usually to go from banking into CPG and alcoholic beverage companies. So, so really though, I mean, my, my whole background has always been about living on the, I guess it used to be a more clear dividing line between business and technology, right? So I have a, I have a business degree, but I've been around computers since I was four, ended up always sort of straddling that line between the two. And at, at Bank of Montreal, after an ill-fated two-year stint writing mainframe code, I then went to a tech startup and spent two years, you know, really listening to customers and thinking about how to quickly build some software solutions. And then went back to BMO for quite a while, uh, another 12 years where I was in what they call the channels world, right? So, you know, the, the, the interaction point between, you know, the, the bank's products and the customer interactions. And so spent a lot of time there, always on the, what we call the alternative channel side, right? So not branches, but telephone banking, online banking, mobile banking, ATMs, and that sort of thing. Okay. So, so I've always lived in that in that kind of hybrid world, and I've always had, kind of had a hybrid role, uh, and so worked my way from more of a business leader into a technology leader, but but really more of a business leader with a technology bent, I guess if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, you you mentioned a couple sort of technologies that are hanging out on the periphery of banking ten years ago when you were into it that now seem more commonplace. So making the move from fintech over to to wine, uh, what attracted you to Artera? Yeah, well, a couple of things. I, I'd spent seven, uh, just over seven years launching what we eventually would call EQ Bank, so a digital bank here in Canada. Grew it to 
a few hundred thousand customers and several billion in deposits. But going from that to, to yeah, to Artera Wines was a bit of an interesting choice. So I'd taken the company though, through sort of this, just sorry, it kind of sounds grandiose when I say that I'd helped take the company through this digital transformation, you know, actually going online shifting from a B2B company where everything was done through brokers into a company that was actually more you know, prominent for its digital capabilities and all the transformation that comes with that, right? So thinking about what direct consumer means, but also transforming the ways that we worked and then bringing the, the tech team up the maturity curve over, over the number of years. Uh, and I think what attracted me to Artera was a couple of things. One, it was a similar journey. I could see that they were going on really trying to move from you know a, a purely B2B company, which they still largely are, and become more of a consumer-facing company and, and you know the transformation that comes with that. And the technology, frankly, is the easy part. It's changing everything else to adjust to becoming a, a consumer-first company. So that you know was a similar journey to what I'd been on, but at a, you know, frankly, a bit of a different scale and a different industry. So lots of learning curve there for me. And the other big thing was I am a, a really big wine nerd. Uh, and so going to the, the largest wine company in the country definitely... Uh, had some appeal. So I, I got to move into this space that I was really interested in, really curious about, as I said, kind of a nerd about, and take these things that I knew, like digital transformation, and and apply them in this new industry. So that that's always what I'm looking for is, you know, a chance to learn, but also, you know, provide some value to my new employer. I bet the perks are a little bit better here than they were in the banking industry, maybe? Yeah, the perks are a little bit different. I'll, I'll be honest. I mean, I was going to say when I was at Bank of Montreal, I got free banking uh, at EQ Bank. All the banking was free. So it was never really much of a perk uh, to have that. But yeah, certainly getting to go to wineries and sometimes work from there, getting to to try new wines as we develop them or import them. You know, I, I went down to Niagara on the lake and spent time with one of the winemakers and actually just, you know, walked through the vineyards and, and saw you know, behind the scenes about how they make wine. And uh, it was just incredibly interesting. To see this, you know, coming from banking and going to a world where, you know, you can actually see something getting created, uh, something physical and tangible. Certainly it's, it's made a difference to my father, who was a farmer who said, well, at least now you're making something as opposed to just charging people money, which is, I think what he thought banking is. So yeah, it, it's quite different. It's a great new experience to have. And I am really irritating the winemakers, I think, because I have a lot of questions. Dan, I want to go back to another point that you made. I mean, when I hear about banking and innovating in a bank, and I hear someone say that the technology is the easy part, that perks my ears up because I wouldn't necessarily intuit that. And I wouldn't intuit that a bank would be brave around technology. So just talk to me a little bit about how you managed to spin up something that was digital first within a sort of archaic industry like banking. How did you convince people to come along for that ride in that industry? Yeah, it's a great question. It, it was a really interesting early part of the journey. And, and when I was at EQ Bank, well, we, we weren't calling it EQ Bank then. The parent company is called Equitable Bank. So it's been around for about 50 years. But when I joined, this was really an idea that the CEO and, and some others had to say, this is how we, we want to advance you know, the kind of company this is. Uh, we want more control over our own destiny and, and have our own direct consumer relationships. But yeah, it, it was definitely a challenge. I mean, the company had built itself around being a B2B company. And as with any other company, you know, change is probably more exciting to me than it is to a lot of other people. And, and so it, it really comes down to, yeah, of course, there's heavy lifting on the technology side, but it's, it's changing the way that people think about delivering work, about uh, approving budgets, about the roles that you need, some of the roles that we were implementing 
just were sort of foreign, you know, to a, a company that had largely been B2B up until then. So org change, you know, the culture change, even, you know, how you think about requirements and delivery, I mean, changes quite a bit, right? So convincing people that, you know, moving off of this idea that you kind of do one big capital spend and then just amortize over multiple years, getting people used to the idea that any tech that you build now, three years from now, you're probably going to have to rip out. And so three years after launching EQBank, we'd completely replatformed the entire thing top to bottom, completely different front end, completely different mid-tier and had migrated the whole thing to Azure. And so, you know, gone were the days of, you know, you kind of build something massive on the mainframe and then just, you know, run with it for a long time. So that was a bit of a shift as well, just, you know, getting people used to that idea and the, the change in nature of how we were asking the business users to interact with us on the technology front. So it was more iterative. It was more pod based. So, it, you know, gone were the days of throwing some giant requirements document over the wall and, and coming back, you know, a couple of years later with, with something that may or may not match up. You know, a lot of companies have gone down that journey already. This isn't something necessarily very new, probably for a lot of your listeners, but in the banking industry, that was, you know, still a bit of a shift to be sure. So let alone setting up things like, you know, contact centers and coming up with a new brand and determining the brand voice and what you were going to represent in the market and how you would change pricing. And, you know, one of the nice things we took away from that was we, we kind of did push, you know, in a very small way, we did push the industry a little bit to adjust their pricing and maybe make things a little bit more fair for Canadians. So that team that I left there at EQ is, is still growing and, and still pushing and still changing and still challenging the Canadian banking space. So I'm, I'm pretty proud of that. Dan, I continue to be surprised by the focus of uh, how you're answering my questions. On that one, you certainly did answer why technology was the easy part. Certainly all the other things that you had to think of, rebranding and repositioning in the market and reshaping incentive structures and pushing against long existing market forces to, to deliver something new to people. I thought that the delivering something new to people idea came up a couple times in your last answer. One, in terms of just trying to create a better experience for customers who were used to being sort of underwhelmed or let down in an industry like banking. But I also liked that you seemed to have a curiosity and an empathy for the business stakeholders internally. Talk me through how some of those conversations go that you're having with those business stakeholders that are used to doing things a certain way. I think you mentioned they're used to taking a year or two to do something. How do you convince people that are used to working at a lower velocity to reduce risk, that it's okay to incur some risk to move at speed. Yeah, th this is this is really one of the challenges of moving away from that old waterfall model. You know, there was this sense, and you know, frankly, we we trained people into this with you know the old CMMI sort of standard way of doing things, which coming from a big bank, you know, was, was pretty pervasive. But this sense of you know these projects are going to take a long time and they're going to be huge, and this is my one kick at the can. Right. If I don't get my requirements in now and I don't force it into the scope, then it's never going to get done. So trying to move people off of that mindset to say, listen, there's going to be an iteration here. There's going to be someone who at the end of this phase, which is not going to be as complete as you want it. And I go through the explanation of what MVP means and that it's not going to be comfortable. There's going to be someone at the end of that phase who is thinking about now, what's the next thing I do? Now, what's the next thing I do? What's what's the next thing I do? How do I get funding for this? So the, this again, this is all going to seem very familiar and almost quaintly old-fashioned, I think, to a lot of your listeners is going through, you know, the concept of Agile with folks. But that was still a shift. And, and the joke that I've heard Gartner say many times is that it took us about 20 years to get 
the rest of the company used to how technology has to work. And then we go and shift everything on them with things like Agile. I mean, explaining how Agile works with finance. You know, they, they built so many of their processes around waterfall. You know, I get a gate here and I can release funds. I get a gate here and I can release funds. Try explaining the concept of a sprint to a CFO and, and, and how they're going to have to think about sort of releasing funding. You know, there is kind of a different challenge, but you do have to have empathy because this is all changing quickly. And, and the things that they knew aren't necessarily true anymore. As technologists, we're used to that. Whatever technology we were in love with three years ago probably isn't that great anymore. You know, maybe it is, but we're sort of used to the idea of having to kill your darlings and take those out of the mix and replace it with something else, that, that constant creative destruction of your own tech stack. And there is a mindset shift to bring that to the rest of the organization, especially for groups like risk. And it's, it's not meant to criticize risk. You know, risk teams and banks are incredibly important, but their job is to mitigate risk, right? And so their, their brains aren't configured to burn things to the ground every, you know, every so often. Now, luckily at EQ Bank, we got to a really good working cadence with our risk team. So they understood what we were doing. And then in fact, things like Agile actually mitigate risk. But at first, it doesn't seem like that. So yeah, that's, that's a lot of the ongoing. And, I, and you, you have to have empathy for those business users and not just get frustrated that they're not just picking it up you know, as quickly as, as you did. Like, it's your job to pick it up. So, so you have to bring people along on the journey. But you, know, you made a point earlier too about thinking about the, the consumer you know, that the end person on the street and switching the mindset from a product centric view, which I will say banks are pretty bad at and their own, you know, product PL, and switching that to be, you know, what makes sense for the average, you know, Canadian in our case, who doesn't think about bank products, who doesn't think about these constructs. So the, the simplest example that we had with the launch of EQ bank was, you know, a checking account versus a savings account. So first of all, no one in Canada tends to use checks. So I don't know why we still call it a checking account, but you know, call it a, a current account or a payment account. So if you think about this today, you probably have one of each, PJ, I'm guessing, right? So you have with your bank, you have an account where you keep a bunch of money where your bills you know, are paid out of and your salary goes into, and you earn no interest. And you might have a savings account where you can earn you know, a tiny bit of interest, but you can't really use that money. If you pay a bill, they charge you $5. If you, you know, transfer more than once a month, they charge you a bunch of money. We just said that doesn't make any sense to anyone except a bank. Like that construct favors no one except banks, right? They want the funds to be stable. They don't want it to be necessarily accessible and they'll incent you to kind of keep it stable. But that just made no sense to us. So we just made one account that said, look, pay as many bills from as you want, transfer in and out, do free e-transfers. We don't care. We're still going to pay you a very high rate of interest. And it's going to be the exact same rate of interest if you have $1 or $100,000. Or if you're a brand new customer or you've been with us three years, right? So there's no stand on one foot and turn around three times to get the highest interest rate. There's no, you have to have a million dollars with us to you know, get your highest interest rate or waive your fees. We, we just made it very, well, equitable. It's called Equitable Bank for a reason. So, so we made it very equitable. And, and that sort of consumer first thinking really infected how we built everything. And, and I think it's a lesson that I've carried with me stepping outside of how we think about our products or our own corporate constructs and really centering everything around again sounds kind of quaint probably to a lot of your listeners but it is a discipline you kind of have to hold on to and keep going back to especially as technologists because we'll get in love with how things work not how things should work for a consumer so you in your past life had experience where you were able to bridge the business and the technology needs at a bank and then pivot both of those and align them towards the needs of consumers, which I think must have been really rewarding. And I can hear in how you tell the story that you're very proud of that work. Do you see similar opportunities now 
in the wine industry in your new role? And how will you use this hybrid mindset of thinking about both business and technology together to activate some of these customer centric ways of thinking in the future? Yeah, I, I, mean, I really do see those similar kind of opportunities. That was part of what drew me. You know, if you think about what's happened in the last 20 odd months, we've seen shifts in how consumers are thinking about buying wine. We're definitely seeing it move more online, which is you know part of what I'm there to help do is, is help us get better at getting wine onto people's doorsteps. You know, we were extremely good at delivering it through every other channel and, you know, have some work to do on the e-com side. And we're not alone. I think the industry in general was catching up, playing catch up pretty, you know, pretty hard uh, in the early days of COVID. So there's an opportunity here to get this consumer experience right too. I think we've been doing really well at Artera. If you walk into one of our estates, you know, the experience is phenomenal. You know, we work closely with provincial liquor boards like the LCBO and SAQ to make sure that we have products on their shelves. You know, we run the wine rack, uh, which is our own set of retail stores. And I love spending time in there. I mean, the, the, the staff are so enthusiastic about everything. And, you know, I'll, I'll go sometimes just hang out in there and, and talk to them. Sometimes they know I, I'm one of their colleagues and sometimes they don't because it's just, it's such a great, you know, experience sometimes being on, on retail when, when the folks are really passionate about the product, which, you know, in wine, they often are. And so I think really, you know, the opportunity to, to bring a lot of that magic into a digital channel is, is what excites me. And it's not easy, right? You're, you're trying to take that personality that can come out in an estate or in a wine rack store, or you're trying to sort of bring some of that magic to online, which is a, a bit of a different interface, right? I mean, it's, it's often more transactional. It's often kind of done in a hurry, but you've got to get that customer experience right. And then really start earning the trust to kind of go beyond transactional and into a bit more of a relationship. So that's kind of the fun stuff that we're working on to see how can we change this from a very product or transactional centric view. We have these products on offer to how do I help people understand wine better? How do we bridge the gap? Because it's, it's a complex world, right? This isn't, you know, banking is complex enough. This is more complex. I mean, it's, like I said, I've been a nerd about this for a long time and I'm still just scratching the surface of what I can know about wine. And, and a lot of my friends still find it a kind of a baffling experience sometimes. But Artera has the size and the breadth to really, you know, help people along the journey, whether they're sort of starting out and, and trying more entry-level things to, you know, trying premium products that we make in our, you know, some of our wineries or that we import, and we can help them with that journey. And so how do you do that in a digital world is, is kind of a really interesting and compelling case to try to get after. Dan, I'm hearing, and I, and you've said a couple times, you've said, our listeners will probably already know how to do this. And that was when you were talking about the fundamental tenets of moving agile and, and of doing agile work. But I think that there's something that I'm finding in what you're saying to me that's not necessarily common. And I'm, I'll, I'll see if I can get to it. You clearly have an empathy for different user types. You think about the different humans that are part of the systems that you're setting up as CIO or as head of digital. You think about the experience between those two humans, and you think about ways that you can bring the life that's in either the winery or the retail location to the digital channel and help to connect those two pieces. But I think more tactically, what might be interesting for the listeners is if they are someone who's in an organization who have this sense of empathy and they can see the opportunities to make their digital experiences more human, what do they need to do within their organization to be able to help affect the change? And what I'm getting at here is I think with your hybrid skill set, 
you might maybe be able to change the language that you're speaking. Like, talk me through a little bit of how do you bridge these gaps between business and technology? How do you code switch between these different needs and these different archaic ways of working to get people aligned to paying attention to customers and to get people aligned to thinking about customer experiences in an iterative way that might feel like it's higher risk, but you know it's higher reward. So not just how you do you know what how to do the right thing? How do you know to convince others that a new thing is the right thing? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. I, I think, I don't want to say storytelling sounds like a trite way to, to say this. I think a, a little bit of this, why I've been able to have some success in this regard is about storytelling. I'm also like infuriatingly rational and we'll sort of break things down into switch between these sort of emotional stories and tug on empathetic heartstrings and then switch into like cold hard facts at kind of a an annoying frequency of switching back and forth dependent on the audience. And, and I think that is really the key. So as I, as I talked about being always in the middle of, of tech and digital, that used to be a kind of a clear divide, as I said. In fact, I kind of was told for a lot of my career that I wasn't pure enough tech to be to run an IT shop and I wasn't pure enough business to kind of have a more traditional business role. Those sound like things that would motivate you to be told that. Yeah, I mean, I actually kind of realized that I, I think early on, I mean, I thought I could see value in being able to, as you said, code switch and, and translate almost between explaining to business folks why technology decisions will help their bottom line and then doing the inverse, right? So if I think about an example back to the banking world, you know, the concept of technical debt, a, a lot of technologists use this and, and it's a handy tool. As you can imagine that, concept resonates pretty well in banking. Like every banking business person understands the concept of debt and that there's good debt and bad debt. And mm -hmm. so I could have that conversation with them to say, look, we'll, we'll do this. And if this thing that you're asking me to do, we can do it. Understand we're going to be paying it down for years, right? It's, it's, it's something we're going to have to undo and it's going to hurt the bottom line for years to come. So I can do this. I can give you short-term cash for all intents and purposes. I can give you short-term value but there's a long tail of pain that's going to come with it. And quite often that would kind of convince them, oh, okay, maybe we don't want to make that kind of change. Whereas I, you know, I saw that happen a lot in my previous life at, at, at Bank of Montreal and I'm not picking on BMO here. I think this was kind of common when you had a, a sort of, again, an, an old sort of, you know, classic divide between business and tech, you know, the mm -hmm. business users saying, I need this and I need it by X. And it's harder to have that conversation, not really huge org environment where you kind of say, I, here's what it's going to mean though. Like you're going to be paying this down for a long time. So I think being able to describe things in these ways to business owners in a language they understand, and it's not just tech gobbledygook, which they think it is for a you know, technologist, it sounds entirely rational. I think for business owners, unless they understand the bottom line or how it's going to, you know, if, if it's marketing, how it's going to impact the brand experience, right? This isn't going to manifest the way that you think it's going to manifest, right? This is going to break these principles that you have from a brand perspective, being able to have those conversations and, and switch back and forth and then go to the technology shop and say, look, sometimes we are going to have to do kind of the wrong thing and build in a, not the wrong thing, but like the less than ideal thing and fix it later because there's a real business reason why we have to do it. We can't miss the market by this much timing or, you know, there's a regulatory reason or whatever. So being able to sort of build in a roadmap that addresses the immediate problem, but gets you back on, on good architectural standing, I think that's been a key. And I think if you're sort of pure business or pure tech, you struggle to kind of be able to sort of bridge that and you, you end up with much more kind of binary consequences. It works or it doesn't. 
I always get the sense of there's, there's always a way for this to work and it's just how well, and what I'm trying to not do is back myself into corners. So that need to be able to code switch, that need to be able to translate, to be able to find a balance and a compromise and know your path out of the compromise, I think has been incredibly value in my career. And then being able to articulate it to the right people without freaking them out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So uh, not overwhelming them, but getting enough people on side that they say, yeah, that, that makes sense. And I've been lucky to have senior executives and CEOs who get that and can understand it because sometimes these are, you know, painful decisions you have to make. But if you can say, I'm, I'll be there to kind of help clean this up. Like this isn't just going to get buried and it'll never come back. Like I'll take responsibility for fixing it. I think that that works well. And Dan, I'm, I'm also noticing some contrasts in addition to the, the hybrid role that you play, both on the business side and the technology side, and that you've played before, that seems to be your sweet spot. I'm also noticing a contrast in the way you described yourself as extremely pragmatic, contrasted against the way you've clearly been able to use your storytelling to inspire me in this conversation. And so I think I'm inferring that there may be some art and science magic here where you're able to be a futurist and envision potential outcomes, but deliver them in a way that feels very grounded and pragmatic. And with that said, is there anything that you can see coming? I mean, the wine industry by nature is cyclical. It's seasonal. It takes quite a long time to see the literal harvest, to plant a crop and to see something develop. So talk to me a little bit about how you consider and plan for the future. What are some of your strategies to ensure that you are able to transform in a way that's sustainable and that's flexible? This has been a really interesting thing that I'm frankly still getting up the learning curve on in in this industry, right? Coming from banking where, you know, you're thinking about long-term planning, but I mean, you know, it's, you're you're not in the sort of world of, you know, harvest and and soil depletion and, you know, long-term, you know, 10, 20 year planning about, you know, how climate change is affecting which grapes you can grow and that sort of thing. So not that I'm very close to some of those aspects, but it, it does create a, a very different way of having to think about where you are trying to future-proof, where you're trying to build. I talk about option value a lot, right? So, you know, where we sort of build ourselves and maybe pay a little bit more to build ourselves some options to kind of switch as things change. So some of how I think about that, obviously on the consumer experience side, you know, what we're building and has to be able to adapt to I mean, who knows what's going to happen with, with COVID? Um, who knows what structural changes will happen in the industry? I think, you know, we've all been enough bars and restaurants at this point, perhaps, if we're lucky enough to do that, to see that there's probably going to be some structural change. It's, it's hard to find retail staff. It's hard to find bar staff, right? So you're going to see some problem. My guess is you'll see some automation really start to kind of pop up in a fairly traditional space like restaurants and, and on-prem. And so, you know, how do I think about adapting to that and how do I build myself option value to be able to, to pivot toward whatever comes next, not knowing what that is. And then as I'm thinking about more behind the scenes, less consumer facing the automation that's starting to happen in agriculture, you know, this has been going on for a while, obviously, but it's something that I'm, I'm starting to to get up to speed on. And so while my you know, as I said, my, my dad's a farmer. He was sort of an early adopter of a lot of technologies on the agricultural front, but he doesn't grow grapes. So, you know, I've been really diving into and learning a ton about having cameras moving through vineyards, looking for, you know, disease pressure or, you know, constantly measuring temperature and beaming it back to the winery. 
having level monitors in the tanks, putting radar in there to actually detect tank fullness. You know, that that sort of thing, you know, gets gets really, really interesting. It's new for me. It's probably old hat for others, but I'm I'm excited to add things like this into the the portfolio of things that I can help the business with, right? How do I find uses of technology that make their lives easier or find more efficiency for them or make the winemaking process better or the viticultural process better? So there's there's a ton of opportunity here and you know walking through the vineyards and picturing sensors on everything and cameras looking at the plants and and checking the you know bunch ripeness and it just it, there's so much exciting potential I think frankly that I'm 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 kind of a little giddy about it. <laughs> um, I've got a lot of things to do before I start tackling all angles of this, but I do think there's there's a ton of opportunity to think broadly about you know when I say digital digital in this context means. I'm putting, you know, edge computing out into a vineyard. So the scope of what I've meant by digital, I think is, is changing, which I'm pretty excited about. And, you know, if I, if I wasn't learning something new, I, I get pretty cranky. So, so I'm, I'm pretty excited to actually have this chance to, to really rethink even, you know, all these things that I think I know about digital transformation. I'm excited to throw a bunch of it out and, and learn a bunch of new stuff in the coming years. So it sounds like a few of the ingredients to be successful in a as a transformation catalyst would be a curiosity and a, a comfort in ambiguity. Certainly, you don't you don't seem worried about the idea that the path may split into multiple different directions. You seem seem ready to adapt to that. And I do love again the the contrast seems to have been the theme of this conversation. I I like the contrast of a CIO title and a, a technology EVP describing the works as standing out in the middle of a field of grapes rather than in a server room. So I, I've been delighted by getting to talk to you and getting a sense for your passion for straddling these two worlds and, and helping to use storytelling to bring people along on the transformation journeys. Dan, I, listen, I really appreciate you sharing your passion for digital transformation with us. I love that you're on this new journey, and I'm excited to see what you can bring us in terms of innovating in customer experiences uh, in the wine industry. And just uh, just wanted to thank you so much for your time and really appreciate you joining us today. Oh, PJ, thanks so much. This was really fun. You've been listening to the latest transformation series from Valtec Cafe. Hit subscribe to get access to our whole back catalogue of conversations. And if you'd like to know more about what we do, why not visit us at valtech.com for all the details. Until next time, thanks for listening.